You know, before I kind of go into the more formal part of the message, I want to just share with you about something that I became aware of three or four weeks ago. There's a group of men every first um, Saturday of the month that we get together from all over the country. It's one of those, uh, those phone prayer calls. And, um, and it's called, for, for the lack of, of, of reason, uh, Capitol Hill Prayer, because all of us that are praying together have some connection with a prayer house that has essentially been a men's prayer house on Capitol Hill for many years. And one of the men was sharing with us about this video that was talking about the revival that is happening in Iran. And I don't know if any of you have seen this, but it's, I'm going to encourage you to write this down as a note to yourself. So when you go home, you can watch it and you can look at it in its entirety. It is long and um, maybe a bit too long, but it's so worth seeing. And it's called Sheep Among Wolves with the number two after it, numerical number two. There was, I guess, an earlier version. So it's Sheep Among Wolves 2. And literally, there is what they are describing, and I I, I, I trust them, and I trust the people who are making these claims that they are not overstating anything, but they are talking about how that this revival that is taking place in Iran is the greatest move of God on planet Earth at this hour. It's all hidden. No one has a church to assemble in. They are giving their lives knowing that if they are found out as Christians, for women, can you even imagine this, the embarrassment of knowing that you will be punished by being raped? What kind of a religious order makes that a punishment for leaving their, quote-unquote, expression or faith? But in Iran, that happens. They expect to spend the rest of their lives in prison. I'm going to just show you just a, just a four-minute segment of, of this. And it's, it's, it's very brief, but I hope it will begin to speak to you about what we have and what is available to us but we might not be valuing the same way. Marlene, would you just go ahead and play it? Thank you. The most impactful thing that he shared with me was a story about his wife, actually, something that his wife said that has really stuck in my head. He talked about how years ago they had an opportunity to move to the United States and live there, so they did. And then after being in the United States for a short period of time, his wife began to plead with him to take her back to Iran, which he felt like was crazy. I mean, who, who wants to move back to Iran under all sorts of 
oppression where, where the sharing of your faith could bring the end of your life or brutal incarceration or rape or all sorts of horrible things. Who, who, who wants to do that? I mean, who, who wants to move from the United States to Iran? She told him, there's a satanic lullaby here and all the Christians are sleepy and I'm feeling sleepy. And that, that little story uh, disturbed me because this woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. And that threat was spiritual sleepiness. That is a more dangerous situation than persecution. And I had to ask myself the question, is that true? Is that true? It's impossible to come to Europe and not be confronted with this reality of, of dead religion. As we've been bouncing around from city to city across this incredible continent and pondering and wrestling with what the Lord is doing in Iran, I can't help but feel that the Lord wants to confront the dead religion in our lives, and he wants to do it through the church in Iran. Now, historically, when the Lord confronts the spirit of religion, what he does is he takes insignificant women and he puts them in the middle of the room and he allows them to express themselves in their affection and their love and their allegiance to him. And he allows the confrontation, the collision of that thing to take place. And I really believe that the church in Iran is like a corporate Mary of Bethany that is confronting all of the opposition in our own hearts to giving everything that we have for the Lord. Actually, persecution keeps you clean in the sense that when you're under a persecuted state, you're constantly leaning into God. You're constantly running to him as your refuge. When I look at the witness of scripture and I look at the witness of Christian history, what I see is that whenever ease and affluence and power is given to the church, it seems to disease. And it does all kinds of damage. Um, not only does it introduce the kind of motivational corruption uh, that just diseases the church, but it just seems to produce lethargy and indifference. It's through this pressure, hardship, and suffering that people are coming to Jesus. I'd rather them suffer and be under pressure and be under an authoritative dictatorship and millions come to Jesus maybe even the whole country can come to Jesus, then freedom, openness, and democracy, and half those people come to Jesus. What's in front of persecuted Christians frequently is what the gospel is all about. And what's in front of affluent Christians in a free society is a is not only that but a whole range of options for life and for time and for use of money and that is a dangerous thing many options that are there for us who live in the west there are so many ways to come to the Lord 
in the sense of coming to different churches, different expressions. And so it becomes very confusing and messaging gets altered and, and actually the pure claims of Christ sometimes really get dulled. And it is a concerning thing. It is part of our problem in living in a society that gives you freedom to choose. But I thank God that we do have that. I am very grateful that we have the opportunity. But I don't want us to take it for granted. Would you pray with me here this morning? Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you will help us to be able to experience the privilege of being able to reach out to you, of being able to call out your name. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will accomplish really what's in your heart. Father, as we prepare in this week to have this thanksgiving experience, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to truly, from the bottom of our hearts, be able to be genuinely grateful and genuinely thankful. And Father, in the midst of having so many opportunities, of having so much available to us, we can forget. We confess that it's possible because we have actually lived it. And we have forgotten to thank you for how good you really are. But Lord, here this morning, I pray that you will awaken in us a deeper, deeper sense of gratitude than we have come in contact with at least for some time. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to begin by sharing a little story. I, I actually shared some of this with some of the people on Wednesday night, so people who are with us on Wednesday evening, you have heard me share this before. But, you know, for my life as a young man, when I was young, things did come very quickly, and I was blessed beyond probably what I should have been in all truth. Um, some of it was to do with ambition. Some of it was to do with vicariously my mother living out her fantasies for ministry and projecting it onto me. Um, But it left me in a posture of feeling like I hadn't achieved, I hadn't succeeded, I wasn't to some point of success. And I remember one specific time when after I had 
had this privilege of being on this national television program in, in Toronto uh, for Canada, and I'm Canadian, that I, I was dealing with really almost a, a, almost a clinical level of, of depression. It's, it's, it's a little hard to grasp it for, for some people, I'm, I'm sure. But um, as one of the, you know, you, you've probably seen on these television programs how that they give away, you know, these wonderful gifts to guests and, and different things. And, and for being on 100 Huntley Street, you know, we, we, we you know, supply this, um, staying at the Harbor Hilton Hotel, luxury hotel, and, 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 and dining in the uh, CN Tower as it rotates around and, and, and that. And, and so I, Charlotte and I were given this gift after doing this program, and, and uh, it was just part of the promotion. It was promoting for the hotel and for the CN Tower. It was just a part of what, what happened, but it was still a, a, you know, a, a lovely benefit. And the morning after that evening, I felt so depressed. I was just almost beside myself. And we had to drive from Toronto back to where we were living in Grand Island, New York. And I said to Charlotte, I, I don't know what to do, but we decided among ourselves, it, I don't know that it was Charlotte that said it, but we said it together that we were going to, we were going to count our blessings. We were going to deliberately think and name things that we really were blessed for or by. And so I would start with something and then we'd thank the Lord for it. Then Charlotte would say something and we would thank the Lord for it. And I would say something else. And before we made that 90-mile trip down to Grand Island, New York, my whole being was transformed. I am not kidding. I'm not just saying words. It wasn't just like some manic, episodic kind of thing coming out of a depression. It was not, I promise you, it was a, it was a transformative moment. And from that point on, I really learned a deep, deep lesson. And there have been times when I've been discouraged and there have been times where I've been unthankful just because you feel pressed in certain situations where you maybe uh, just feel like you're not happy. You're not happy with the situation. You're not happy with what's going on in your life. Everybody goes through that. It's just a part of life and living. But if you can understand what can happen by truly focusing on the things that God has blessed you with, I don't care who you are or where you are, it will change your life. Amen. You know, one of the 
most iconic characters that come to mind for me is the woman Corey Tenboom. And Corey Tenboom, when she was in Auschwitz, in the concentration camp, when people were dying around her and going to the gas chambers and she was in such horrible straits. She was thankful for the lice in her hair because it kept the guards from molesting her and other women. Now, can you imagine that? Listen, there's models everywhere if we're willing to look. And it doesn't matter what kind of condition your life is in. What is important, the question is, what are we looking at? And how are we perceiving our current circumstance and situation? When you look at those people in Iran that are following hard after Jesus are making a decision and when you do watch this movie it will come out and you'll see it and you'll, you'll really understand the decision to follow Christ fully and lay your life down does something to free you from all of the heavy encumbrances that we have by trying to live out our lives on some success model that is really a distortion. And I want to begin with David in the cave of Adullam. And this is from 2 Samuel 24, verses 13 through 17, and we'll put the scriptures up. And... It says, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, and they drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. And this is one of the illustrations in the Bible, and there are many illustrations in the Bible, about a drink offering. Pouring out that which is valuable and that which is precious and giving it to the Lord. Think with me about David. I, I was actually doing one of my 
Pray TV programs and, and uh, this past week, and I was thinking about David and, and, and what he was going through at different phases in his life. And when you think about that, this man, I mean, he was a shepherd boy. He was the giant killer. He was in Saul's court, married Saul's daughter, the king's daughter, was on ascendancy, and then because he became a threat to the king, he was, he was dismissed and chased and out hiding. And, and, and then when he became king, his own son Absalom, and that whole story, you can go into it. But there's, there's this arc of a journey going up and down and up and down in David's life. But David did learn how to worship God through all of these problems, through all of these circumstances. So like David, even if you are hiding in fear for your life in a cave, you can be thankful. You can pour out a drink offering, something of value. I want us to look at Elijah on Mount Carmel. And this is in... 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 32 through 35 in the New International Version, and we read, With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold 20 pounds. That's what it really works out, 20 pounds of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, do it again, he said. And they did it again. And he says, do it a third time. And he ordered and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and it even filled the trench. Now remember, this is a time of drought. This is a time where in that nation, God had given Elijah the word of the Lord when he stood up before evil King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, and he said, it will not rain in Israel, until I say so. That's boldness. But he had the anointing to back it up. You can say some truly bold things if God's spirit and God's anointing has put those words into you for you to make those declarations. You better be careful that you know that you're being moved by the spirit of God and not just prompted by some momentary urge, but truly the Lord was on him. And so water was a scarce thing in the land. Can you imagine? All the brooks dried up. There wasn't any water in the land. And yet they found this water. I don't know how they got it out of some well somewhere that was deep underground in one of those cavities that holds the, the, the supply of water that's, that's subterranean. I'm not sure. But this was a lot of water. And they poured that water on the sacrifice until it was just absolutely drenched so that when the fire from heaven came down and it fell, 
There was absolutely no doubt that it wasn't somehow something incendiary down inside there that was, was sparking it off in some magical formula. No, it had to be a miracle. And it was a miracle. But miracles follow when we give that kind of sacrifice. And so for this man, Elijah, this literally was Elijah's drink offering. In the middle of a drought, in the middle of scarcity, we can pour out our most valuable resources into God, into his arms, into his hands. You can trust him. I believe that with all my heart. I've proven it over and over again in my soul. I want us to look at Paul and his words to Timothy. And this is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, going down through the 8th verse. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Does that sound like a time we're living in? It is where we're at. This time is upon us. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Then Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the, the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I hope that we are longing for his appearing. This was Paul himself being the drink offering. And I want to take you to one other story. And this is perhaps just seems a little out of place, but because it speaks so much to what's going on in our time. I just feel like it's really worth seeing this. I, I, I read through the entire book of Ezra last evening and and I've read it, of course, many times before, but in chapter 3, beginning at verse 10 and going down through the 13th verse, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. 
His love towards Israel endures forever. It just reminds me a little bit about our worship experience here this morning. So beautiful. I am so grateful. I mean this with all sincerity. I am... I mean, it doesn't happen absolutely every week, but almost always I am transformed or transfixed by what God does through people who open their hearts in abandonment and worship. And this house is becoming a house of worship in, a, in an incredible sense because it's not just the musicians, it's not just the singers, although they are there to lead us and we follow them with, with our hearts engaged. But as they did it here, he said, he is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Remember in this story, and we can go and we can look at Ezra and Nehemiah and the, and the charge that had come to them. After, after the Babylonian Empire and after Nebuchadnezzar had literally come in and crushed Israel and taken many of them out and removed them, and you know, you read about in Jeremiah how, how the, they, the, the word of the Lord came to them, don't just hang your harps in the willow trees and, and grieve and weep and do nothing thinking that I have abandoned you. I have not abandoned you. You can be in those difficult situations in life and yet you're still called to worship. You're still called to give your life to him. Amen. And when they came and they were there, in the verse 12 it says, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they had been alive, they had observed it, they'd seen what it was, and they were laying the foundations, and they were coming to dedicate the laying of the foundations. It says, they wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. They shouted for joy because they didn't know anything different, and they were having the temple rebuilt. And they were experiencing joy. And this is part of what I see as the test for some of us that have lived a little bit longer than others. We can look back. And we can see losses. And it can impair our souls from entering into the joy that God is calling us into. But it says in verse 13, no one could distinguish between the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. It's a puzzling set of scriptures. But it speaks of what I see happening in Christianity, at least in America, in Canada, in Western society. 
You have young people who for the first time are truly worshiping and experiencing the Lord, like what was going on at the tent and praying for 50 hours, what was going on on the fourth floor right upstairs here for 10 days of prayer. And there was rejoicing and joy and, and, and a sense of celebration and, and people just, younger people, just all excited and it's good. But what we have to do who are a little older and perhaps have a historical perspective of seeing a church that had more influence in the culture or seeing that things have declined in regard to the Word of God and, and holiness and, 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 a, and a cultural framework that we could consider Christian. And we're not really living in that world anymore. God is going to have to do something to alter this, and he will. He can. You know that this is not a problem for God? Do you know that? God can, at any moment, in an instant of time, transform this world. All he has to do is just pull back the veil sufficiently to reveal who he really is and his real power. We all fall down. We all fall down. Every man, woman, and child will fall before the Lord. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bend. All will give him praise and glory. But we are living in this in-between time right now where you've got this dissonance that's going on in the culture. And we're all aware of it. I don't want to just spend a lot of time focusing upon it. But you see people accusing one another and living in dissonance and disharmony and accusation. And that's all of what, you know, some people are saying, well, the Ukrainians are doing it or the Russians are doing it or, or whatever is doing it. No, it is the enemy of our souls who is doing it. He is, he is making a mess, but his time is coming to an end. The Lord God Almighty is setting up his kingdom. And we are a part of it. And we need to know how to possess the land in our inner man. And walk in his authority and stand in his strength. Because that is what God has made you for. He's created us for this day. He's created us to live out his examples on the earth. I am so grateful. Again, Pastor Miranda invited one of our friends to come in here this morning. Prayed with him. The sinner's prayer to invite Jesus into his life. A man who was unfortunately sleeping in front of our door. Thank God Thank God we're living in this mixture. Great opportunity for the kingdom. 
I can hardly wait till this morning service is absolutely jam-packed full of people who come out of the streets and are broken. I don't care. I don't care whether or not they have means. I don't care whether or not they are educated or have got, uh, got uh, the ability to be able to communicate with elegance. It doesn't matter. The souls of men and women need to come and find in Christ their new identity. Their calling, their purpose, what God has made them, what the Holy Spirit is bringing them into, what God is going to give to this church as they come. What a gift! What a gift! But they're not here yet. And we're going to get ready for them because they're coming. I shared with Charlotte as we drove in this morning that last Sunday afternoon after I departed and I always sort of waiting for the end of the, the second service to be able to take the, the recorded materials to do a little edit on, on them. And so I gathered them up and I was making my way back home to Salem. And as I drove out and got on Mass Avenue and headed down towards Cass Boulevard. There was a man. I mean, people were honking, but there was a man. He was standing in the street. I'm going to act it out just a little bit. I, he, he, he was hung over like this. And he was in the middle of the street, in the left-hand lane where you turn to get onto Milnia Cass Boulevard. And he couldn't get out of this posture. He was trying to get out of this posture. Literally, his pants were down around his knees. No man wants to live like that. No man deserves to live like that. No man should be humiliated like that. God's intent is for that man to have dignity. God's going to use this congregation as a tool in his hand to bring dignity to men and women who are living in debauchery, are under the influence of strong drug and drink, so much so that their minds are gone. They don't know yet that there is a better way. They may have heard it with words, but it hasn't yet attached to them because they don't know that they, they don't have to live that way. They don't have to be there. And God is going to use us as elements in his hands to tangibly reach and communicate his claims in relevant terms that will land on their souls and bring them out of that bondage and bring them into glorious light. That is God's purpose for this place. It is his calling on our lives. And there are some of us that are in this place 
right now who have been there. Maybe not exactly like that, but in some expression of that kind of brokenness. Because we all know in this house that we are broken apart from the grace of God being applied to our souls. And we are happy with it. I would, I would not rather be in another place. I would rather be here among you than in any other fancy place. It doesn't matter. I want you just to stand with me for a moment. I'm going to ask that God, the Holy Spirit, will somehow work in us. And sure, musicians, please come. There is one more story, and I'm not going to read all of it to you, but it's from 2 Samuel 24. You can read it when you go home, verses 18 through 24. It's another David story. One of the ways that David erred was when he wanted to see how many fighting men he had in the land of Israel. God had always been able to bring Israel into victory. And God is able to win the battles by many or by few. It doesn't matter. All he needs is a few people whose hearts are set on following him. But David made a mistake. And he decided, we're going to have a census. I want to know how many men there really are that can stand up and can fight. And even against the advice of Joab his general, he sent out the people to count those who could stand under armament through a prophet named Gad there came a word of rebuke to David I'm not going to develop the story because it's a bit long but there were there was going to be punishment because of David's disobedience. And David chose the punishment that would come by the hand of the Lord, not by an outer army coming in, etc., etc. But Gad came to him and he said, if you really want this to stop, the punishment from the angel of the Lord that had been sent to punish Israel. He said, if you want this to stop, you need to offer the sacrifice. And David went to the threshing floor of a man whose name was Arna the Jebusite. 
And this man said, David, what do you need? Why are you here? He said, I need to offer a sacrifice unto the Lord, and I need to build an altar here. Aruna was going to give him everything. He wanted to give him the oxen. He said, see, here are the yokes of the oxen. You can take them and they'll be kindling wood and you can burn them. And David said in his reply, no, I insist on paying for it. He said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. As we prepare for next Sunday, I want us to adopt this very statement that David made at the threshing floor. I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. We want to give to the Lord, but we want to give to the Lord out of convenience. We want to give to the Lord out of the substance that we can nicely, neatly handle. I don't know what that means to you. I'm not even sure I know what it means to me, although Charlotte and I have talked about, prayed about, and discussed. But the Lord is looking on the heart. What we give is an expression. But the Lord is looking at our hearts. He's looking at our souls. He's looking at what is the motivation behind what we bring. The actual physical substance of it is not that important. The motivation to hear clearly from the Lord and to identify and say, I will, I will not give you what costs me nothing. I will give to you something, Lord, that is dear. I will give to you something that is a sacrifice. What is your drink offering? What is your drink offering? Three men broke through the lines of the Philistine army and brought back a precious gift of water to be poured out. You might think, what is, what, if I bring this offering next Sunday to Lion of Judah, what, 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 what is it going to bring? What is it going to mean? It's going to mean that what you gave is an offering a beautiful sacrifice, a something that is meaningful and valuable. Father, I just pray that this day, as you're doing the preparatory work in our souls, that, Lord, you would shape us 
into men and women who joyfully bring a sacrifice to you. Joyfully give. Because you have given to us, we have the ability to give. Whether it's the widow's might, which Jesus, you celebrated as the highest offering and gift, remembered through the ages, or whether it is untold wealth, God, if it's given from the heart, it's a pleasing offering poured out to you, a drink offering. Like Elijah, with that confidence that he could pour all of these jars of water, 12 huge jars of water on the sacrifice because he knew there was no lack in you and that you had given him the word to say it will not rain in Israel until I say so. And then after the sacrifice was offered, after you consumed it with lightning and fire from on high, he spoke the word and the rains came. Your rains are coming. Would you say it with me right now? Your rain is coming on Lion of Judah. Your rain is coming upon congregation Lion of Judah. The abundance of the rain, the rain so much that we're going to literally have to run for shelter. The rain is coming. The rain is coming. The rain is coming. I declare it in the heavenlies now. The drought is over. The rain is coming. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Sing it, team. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.